0: Good morning. good morning. Welcome to St. James. Uh, it's good to see you guys. Welcome to the people who are watching on the live stream. I'm glad that you're with us as well. Take a second, if you would, and uh, fill out the guest registers, which are uh, next to you, and pass those down. You don't have to; it's uh, it's not required. But it would be nice if you would. I'd love to see that you were here with us this morning. Um, after church, after the worship service, there's no Bible study. Instead, there is food downstairs. There's an Easter brunch. And then uh, an Easter egg hunt for the kids as well, um, which reminds me to say thank you to everybody who participated in helping out with Glen Carbon's village Easter egg hunt last week. That was a lot of fun, and uh, they were very, very grateful. One of these Easter lilies up here is from the village to say, uh, to say thank you for uh, those of us who helped out helping out, which is really cool. Uh, ours is this afternoon, right after the Easter brunch, which is right after the service, um, Also, thank you to the people who are here helping out with the workday yesterday as well, um, making things look good around here and outside. Um, Thank you very much for that. There is one quick logistical note, and then we'll get into worship. There's no new members class tonight. There is next Sunday, though. I will not be here next Sunday morning. Pastor Lang is going to be here preaching to us, but there will be new members class that night. I will be back for the new members class. So uh, if you're in that, or if you want to be in that, or if you want to just come and hang out. Uh, That'll be at 6 o'clock next Sunday evening, but not tonight. Okay, let me pray for us, and then we'll get into worship. Father, this morning, uh, make the new creation, which you have inaugurated by your son's resurrection, make that our reality this morning. Make that the reality that trumps all the artificial realities that we've created for ourselves that seem so real when we're in the middle of them the pursuit of pleasure, or the pursuit of money, or the pursuit of respectability, or relevance, or prestige. Father, this morning, w- would you remind us again that the new ultimate reality, bigger and better and sharper than all those realities, just, which are just echoes of the real thing, is the resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. continue in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Almighty God, our Maker and Redeemer, we poor sinners confess unto you that we are by nature sinful and unclean. And that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. Wherefore we flee for refuge to your infinite mercy, seeking and imploring your grace for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. O most merciful God, who has given your only begotten Son to die for us, have mercy upon us, and for his sake grant us remission of all our sins, and by your Holy Spirit increase in us true knowledge of you and of your will, and true obedience to your word, to the end that by your grace we may come to everlasting life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Upon this, your confession, I announce the grace of God to all of you, and in the stead and by the command of my Savior Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. From Psalm 118. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Please stay standing as we sing, This is the Feast. seated. Old Testament reading is Exodus 14 through uh, the first verse of 15. And I'm glad that this reading, I'm glad that this is the Old Testament reading because it's very physical. And the temptation for many of us is to think of Easter as kind of a private religious experience. But the Exodus reading insists that it's actually, that the Easter changes everything, including geopolitics. And when God saves us and rescues us, it's not a private, personal experience, but it's actually a global, holistic experience. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. They're, at the, they're uh, pinned in at the Red Sea. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Moses said to the people, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Epistle reading, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. Paul says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's a Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, the other apostles, though it was not I, but the grace of God that's with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please stand for the gospel reading. The Holy Gospel according to St. John chapter 20. Glory to you, O Lord. This is picking up from the end of the reading on uh, Friday night. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's confess our faith with the words of the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Please stay standing for the hymn. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. That's the epistle reading, or you could uh, pull it up on your bulletin there. And I'd like to think about what Paul is saying to us here in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. It's it's pretty much as bare-bones explanation of what the resurrection is as you can get. One of the things I want to do this morning, and and I always feel this burden every Easter Sunday, is to talk about Easter in a way that doesn't turn it into private religious experience talk. That somehow, I mean, the Christian church does this sometimes. Famously, Rudolf Boltmann, uh, the German Lutheran scholar about 75 years ago, explained the resurrection in terms of, well, we know it couldn't happen. Like, people, dead people don't come to life. What the resurrection is, it's, it's this cosmic spiritual language that helps us think about how the church was founded and how we now have new hope, and we can live with love and life in our hearts. And we can hope someday for a future in heaven. That's what the resurrection is. It's a metaphor for that. And what I want to do is I want to say no, that tr- that's not the case. Resurrection is real, and because Jesus really physically arose from the dead, it has ramifications for every part of human existence. And so when we sing, Christ is arisen, hallelujah, It's not the same same as singing, take me out to the ball game, which is something that you do in a certain context. And you you do it unironically if you're at the Cardinal game and it's the seventh inning stretch. You sing, take me out to the ball game. And you do it and it's a part of the experience. But you you don't walk around your house singing, take me out to the ball game. You don't go to work and sing it. You you don't sing it here. It, it it, It belongs in Bush Stadium. And what I want to say is that the hymns that we just sang actually belong everywhere at all times. They belong in your workplace. I'm not saying you should sing Christ has arisen hallelujah during the morning staff meeting tomorrow morning. But I'm saying that it does, it matters for everything. This is not private, personal, religious experience. This is the turning point of human history. That God would die and come back to life makes everything different. And it's our calling as Christians to learn to live in light of that. So looking at the text, um, I'll just give you, before we start, just a really brief outline of it. Paul, in verses one through two at the beginning, and then verse 11 at the end, he brackets it with, this is just a basic explanation of the gospel that you've been taught and that you've learned. So he says, I'd remind you, brothers, of the gospel. I preach to you which you received and which you stand and by which you're being saved. If you will fast to the word, I preach to you unless you believe it in vain. So here's gonna come, This is basically what the gospel is, he's going to say. Then he says it, and then at the end he wraps it up by saying, so whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. And the gospel that he presents here, there's three parts to it, and you can see this, verses 3 and 4, it's the events of the resurrection. Verses 5 through 8, the witnesses to the resurrection. And then verses 9 and 10, the transformative power of the resurrection. So he talks about the events of the resurrection. He kind of outlines them briefly. Talks about the witnesses to the resurrection who were there. And then he talks about the transformative power of the resurrection. So let's let's just work through those three sections one by one. So verses three and four first. Paul delivers the first important what he also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So emphasizing the fact that this is actually a literal that unlike Boltman and unlike the Easter sermons that you will hear in many churches, not all churches, maybe not even the majority of churches, that say Easter is kind of this, it's it's an example of the transformative power of God's love and it's kind of an object lesson. Don't take it seriously, it didn't really happen. Paul starts off by saying that this actually happened. The guy died, he was buried for three days. He rose again from the dead. Why would he mention that he was buried if it's just a, A metaphor, then of course he was buried. You don't need to say that. But but if Jesus actually physically rose from the dead, it's the prelude to his being risen from the dead, is that he was put into a tomb, and now the tomb is empty. This is important. If the tomb isn't empty, then it can be just a spiritual lesson. But if the tomb is empty, then something has happened. I mean, we can talk about later on what it is, but something has happened. Something physical has happened So he was buried, the tomb is empty. The second thing he points out is uh, that it happens on the third day he was raised from the dead. Again, if this is just like if Jesus spiritually rose from the dead, why would there need to be three days of death? Why couldn't he just die and then his death be like instantly go into spiritual resurrection, whatever a spiritual resurrection would be? But the fact that he was in the tomb for three days and then the tomb was empty Paul certainly believes that Jesus physically rose from the dead. Another key element here is this. So Jesus died, he rose from the dead. Paul mentions twice here, kind of redundantly, unless he's trying to make a point. At the end of verse 3 and at the end of verse 4, he says, this happened in accordance with the Scriptures. Christ died in accordance with the Scriptures. Christ was buried and raised from the third day. on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. What does he mean in accordance with the Scriptures? Okay, so the, the New Testament doesn't exist at this time. It's the old testament is what he's talking about he doesn't mean that you can read the old testament and find little verse nuggets here and there that say the messiah is going to die and rise from the dead what he means is this is that the old testament is a story that has no ending it's a story without an ending it's 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 a it's a great story it's there's lots of ugly stuff there's lots of beautiful stuff it's certainly dramatic But at the end of the story of the Old Testament, things are screwed up. That's how it ends. It's like, it'd be like if if the story of Cinderella ended with the prince searching for the princess but not finding her. It would be like that. The Old Testament is like that. It's a story that needs an ending. All Jesus is, all Paul is saying is that Jesus's death and resurrection is the perfect ending to the story that the Old Testament has been writing. His death and resurrection is in accordance with that story. So what is the story? For those of you who aren't familiar, let me just give you a quick 30-second, hopefully, rundown of what the story of the Bible is about. God creates this beautiful world. He creates it with bodies. He creates it with trees and oceans and mountains and squirrels. He puts us in it, and he designs it to look like this, with us in relationship with each other. Us in relationship with him. And us taking care of the environment, that was God's plan all along. Humans screw it up. They do a spectacular, we do, they, we do a spectacular job of screwing the whole thing up. And now there's war and there's racism and there's cancer and there's petty jealousies and little bitternesses and workplace politics and families falling apart and all those sorts of things. This is what we do. There's pollution. We, we screw the whole thing up. God doesn't just say, well, that's bad. What am I going to do now? Maybe I'll take a few of them up to heaven with me and then blow the whole thing up someday. No, God doesn't do that. God says, I'm going to fix what humans screwed up. I'm going to redeem this whole thing back to myself. Not one square inch of what I've lost to the human's rebellion am I going to let the enemy have. I'm going to win it all back. I'm going to win their bodies back. I'm going to win their relationships back. I'm going to win the environment back. I'm going to do it all. The end of the Old Testament, though, it still hasn't happened. God has called the people Israel to be his agents to bring this about. But they, like the Christian church, have failed spectacularly in this mission. So what God does is he becomes a human being, writes himself into his own story, and takes care of himself. He dies on the cross. If you need to, go back and uh, watch the YouTube video of the Good Friday service He dies on the cross, absorbs all the evil in the entire world into him, because since he's God, he's powerful enough to do that, is killed for it, and then three days later, which is why we're here this morning, he rises from the dead, doing away with all that evil. This inaugurates the new creation process by which he slowly but surely, by the power of his resurrection and through his screwed up agents, the Christian church, who fail spectacularly still, is getting rid of all these evil things. He's put us on mission to be a part of this, and someday he's going to return and make everything new finally. That's the story of the Bible in a little bit more than 30 seconds. Jesus' death and resurrection is the linchpin of that story. It is the climax of that story. If it does not happen, the story does not happen. If that does not happen, as Paul will go on later to say in 1 Corinthians 15, if that does not happen, we of all people are the most miserable. There is no hope in life. It's just one random evil thing happening to us after another, and then you die. But if God himself was killed and rose from the dead, he can fix everything. There's not one single power in the universe, death being the most powerful of all the powers, the evil power that stands behind all other evil powers. If death can't beat him, then nothing can beat him. And if he can't be beaten, then we can't be beaten. The human race, God will rescue them. The environment, God will rescue it. That's what's at stake here in resurrection. That's the events of the resurrection. Let's move on to the witnesses here. This is very important. Verse five, Jesus says, uh, Paul says, Jesus appeared to Peter, to the 12, to more to more than 500 people at one time, most of whom are still alive. Then he appeared to James, all the apostles. Last of all is to one untimely born. That's an interesting phrase. We're not gonna talk about that now. He appeared also to me, Paul says. So Jesus appeared to witnesses. Why is this important? Staying along the theme of the sermon. It's important because of this. When when, when Paul argues for the resurrection, he doesn't say, I know that Jesus lives. I know because I can really feel him deep down in my heart. Or he, he, he doesn't say, I know that Jesus lives because all the evidence to the contrary, I really, really believe it. And anything you believe will be so. He doesn't say any of that sort of nonsense. He says this, Jesus rose from the dead. It happened. There are people who saw him. Go talk to them if you doubt me. There are witnesses who saw it happen. Go talk to them. That's what you do with history. So, very important I'm about to say here. The resurrection of Jesus is not primarily a religious event. What we are not here doing this morning is not primarily religion. It is first and foremost, and it never ceases to be less than actual human history. It's human history. It actually happened. Only then does it become religious. But that's only weird because we Americans separate religion and history and religion and politics and religion and culture and religion and everything else. We separate them in ways that nobody else in the world has ever been comfortable with. We do that. And so I have to say things like, this isn't religion, it's history. For Paul, for the for for. Jesus's earliest Jewish community for all Africans today, for all people in Asia today, for all Latin Americans today, it's, plain, it's clear that it's religion and it's history both. It's religion, it's history, it's politics, it's culture, it's everything. You would never divide those things up. The witnesses emphasize this to us that this actually happened. This is the way history works, of course. The only way that you know anything about the American Civil War, including that it was an historical event, is that people who were there saw it, wrote down information about it, took pictures of the events, and then passed them on. None of you have actually witnessed the Civil War firsthand. What you've heard is eyewitness accounts and seen pictures. That's the way history works. And that's what Paul is doing. He's appealing to history, not to faith. I'm not, I'm not telling you this morning, people, that You just really, really need to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I'm saying it actually happened and it can be verified the way history is normally verified. Go check the eyewitness accounts. That's why it's important that there are four eyewitness accounts. That's why it's important that they all differ slightly because that's what historians do. They look at events. They measure the different eyewitness accounts. If there are four eyewitness accounts to events and they're all exactly the same, any good historian is going to say, this is manufactured one of them took one of the other accounts and just copied it out. Or, like, uh, I, I mentioned this in here for several months ago for those of you who were here. A good police investigator hearing four accounts of an event, they're all identical, will say, uh, they collaborated, they got together and, 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 and compared their stories and made sure that all their ducks were in a row. But when you read the gospel accounts of the resurrection and they're all slightly different because they're all from different perspectives, but they all agree this guy was dead, he rose from the dead. We talked to him. We touched him. We saw him eating food. It was actually a physical, not a ghost resurrection, but a physical resurrection. What we're dealing with here is human history. Give me a few minutes to do this. I always feel a burden to do this on Easter Sunday morning because I don't know who's here. Arguing for, arguing for the resurrection historically. And last year, I spent a lot of time on this. I'm gonna try and do it more briefly this year, if that's okay. The only arguments against Jesus's bodily resurrection are not historical. There are no good historical arguments against Jesus' resurrection. There are philosophical arguments and theological arguments against Jesus' resurrection. Here's what I mean, hang with me here. Philosophical arguments would go like this. As a materialist, as a Western secularist materialist, nothing ever happens that hasn't happened before. The universe always works the same. Dead people never rise from the dead, therefore, this guy didn't rise from the dead because dead people don't rise from the dead. And, and I'm reminded, I'm sure, I, I'm sure I quoted this last teaser. I'm reminded of what uh, Wesley said to uh, Princess Buttercup when she said, we can't go into the fire swamp. He says, we're going into the fire swamp. And she says, we can't go into the fire swamp. Nobody's ever made it out of, uh, uh, we'll never survive. And Wesley says, you're only saying that because nobody ever has. Just the the, the fact that nothing has ever happened before doesn't mean that it won't happen, especially if God has decided to act in human history. See, that's what's at stake here. It's a theological disagreement. If God has decided to act in human history, it's exactly the kind of thing we would expect for him to do something radical and crazy. But if you start with the premise that God never acts in human history, everything just goes along on materialistic grounds, then of course the resurrection didn't happen. See, see that's why I say it's a, it's a theological disagreement. Is there a God who wants to act in human history? I believe yes. If so, that's the sort of thing we would expect. If not, then you're free to disbelieve it. But there's more to the theology than that. Why, here's the, here's the number one reason why people would not want to believe in the resurrection. I shouldn't say the number one because the philosophical one, people say that to me too. Do you guys know who Aldous Huxley is? Aldous Huxley, a famous, uh, actually a genius, brilliant agnostic philosopher in the 20th century, lived from the early 1900s to about the mid-1960s, wrote a lot of stuff arguing against uh, established religion and God. And he has a, a book of essays called Ends and Means, Means and Ends. And in one of those essays, he's super transparent about why he rejected the resurrection of Jesus, in ways that, like most people I talk to, they 're like, so I like measured the evidence, and I think that it's lacking." No, actually, Huxley is super honest. here. Huxley never became a Christian, so this is not some sort of like Christian viewpoint. This is a, a, an honest, agnostic reason to not believe in the resurrection. Here's what he says. He says, "I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning. No God involved, no." God acting to rescue the world, just random happenstance. He said, I had motives for wanting the world to to not have a meeting. And consequently, I assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. Do you see what he said? I had motives for not wanting to believe in Christianity. And once I had the motives, it was easy for me to find reasons which would back up my motives. I didn't start with reasons. I started with not wanting Christianity to be true. He goes on to say this. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world, who rejects resurrection, is not concerned exclusively with the problem in pure metaphysics. Okay, that's fancy language. Just to say, the philosopher who who argues against the resurrection is not just acting philosophically or like weighing evidence. He's also concerned to prove that there's no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. That's the crux of it. If Jesus rose from the dead, I can't do what I want to do because there's somebody in charge. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if God has never acted in the universe to make things right, then I get to do whatever I want to do. No questions asked. He goes on to say this. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. So he's being even more specific now. What I didn't want was the moral system that Christianity provides. I didn't want that. So I had to come up with a philosophy that said, Christianity is wrong. Not because I actually believe Christianity was wrong, but because I wanted to do what I want. And Christianity was saying, you're not allowed to do what you want. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. The supporters of this system claimed that it embodied the meaning, the Christian meaning, they insisted, of the world. There was one admirably simple method of confuting these people and justifying ourselves in our erotic revolt. We would deny that the world had any meaning any meeting, whatever. As refreshingly honest, Aldous Huxley says, I oppose Christianity not because I think it's not true, but because if, it's just, because if it is true, I don't get to have sex with whoever I want. And if it is true, God has rules about who we have sex with, and I must obey him. That's why I'm saying the only arguments against, the best arguments against resurrection are not historical, but they're philosophical and theological. Historically, almost all historians that I read now who aren't in the Aldous Huxley camp will agree that there's actually no explanation for the resurrection other than the disciples actually saw somebody that they believe was the risen Jesus, over 500 of them. And they all saw the same person. That's actually, that's, I mean, that's what historians are saying now. I quoted this to you last year, I won't do it again. Ed Sanders, who taught... Um, Uh, 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 history and uh, religious history at Duke for a long time. He actually just passed away recently. Brilliant man. Not a Christian. He called himself a secularist. He wrote a book about the historical Jesus, and at the end he says, I don't believe in Christianity, but something happened on Easter morning. I don't know what it was, he says, but actually something happened. There's no other historical mechanism to explain why all these people said, we actually saw this guy. And when they were told Unless you quit saying that, we're going to kill you. They all said, okay, we'll die, but we really saw this guy. There's no, there, there's no argument against it. Historically, something happened. These people were willing to give up their lives for this. Now, some people might say, the disciples wanted to believe it so bad. They were so inv- invested emotionally that they had to kind of like pretend it was the case. Actually, historic, this is not what humans do historically. This is not what we do. Like, I you might start a business and be emotionally, financially, logistically invested in this business. If the business fails and bottoms out, nobody says, I mean, what are your choices? You live in poverty, go get a job working for somebody else, or start a new business. These are your choices, right? Nobody says, my business really succeeded. You can't see it. It didn't really happen, but spiritually, in my heart, my business is succeeding. Nobody, it's not the way the world works. Any, any Jewish person who believed in a Messiah, and there were lots of uh, uh, wannabe messiahs in Jesus' day, if the Messiah fails and is killed by Rome, any Jewish person would either stop believing in messiahs or find a new Messiah. None of them ever would say, actually, Don't tell, between us, let's create this story where our Messiah, that's a big failure, he actually rose from the dead. It just wouldn't happen historically. It doesn't make any sense. That's why Ed Sanders says, historically, there's really no other explanation than that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, what do we do with this? Okay, that's an interesting event. I've told this story before too. I had a professor in seminary who had a friend who they went, the the friend was an agnostic and uh, they were super close and um, he was on a camping trip with them one time and he sat down and kind of did the C.S. Lewis arguments for the historicity of Jesus' resurrection. And the friend said, um, okay, you win. Jesus rose from the dead. Weird stuff happens. My, my, my professor friend said that the guy actually said to him, I, I saw in the newspaper one time that there was an aardvark that was born with two heads. Weird stuff happens. Like, what does it matter to me? That, that's a question that Paul addresses here too. If Jesus rose from the dead, and it is the, the, the finale of Israel's story, then it has to have global ramifications, including for us, which is what he goes to finally here in verses 9 through 10. Paul says, I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So he transitions from verse nine, I used to be filled with hate. I used to chase down people who disagreed with me ideologically and have them thrown in prison. And now I've been transformed. I'm filled with God's grace. I don't have that same hate. I love the people, the, the churches that I've built. I love my fellow Christians, but I also love the people who disagree with me, who hate me. So a classic example is in Romans 11 when he says, the people who hate me, I wish that I could die. If if somehow I could die and pay for their sins, I would agree to do it. That's the level of Paul's love that he has. How does that happen? The resurrection of Jesus Christ changes Paul's life. He meets the resurrected Jesus and it completely transforms him. It changes everything. It changes his viewpoint of the world from one that's focused and revolves around a system of death I have to win. You have to lose in order for me to win. I have to, you have to lose money in order for me to make money. You have to lose face in order for me to gain face. You have to lose respect in order for me to gain respect. That's a system that's based on death. You have to not get the promotion at work so that I get the promotion at work. Our lives revolving around that system of death gets radically and profoundly changed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So much so that Paul says, I'm willing now to give up my life for everybody else. That only happens if Jesus rose from the dead. Look, this is my story too. Some of you know this and some of you don't know this. Like, I was basically dead. I was, I was a major league loser. I was a bum. I was lazy. I was a pagan. I was living life exactly the way I wanted to live it. I was Aldous Huxley. I destroyed my marriage and my family. Abandoned the church that I belonged to. I abandoned God, and God, by the power of Jesus' resurrection, radically changed my life. I know this sounds like I'm about to start a sales pitch. I don't want anything from you for this, okay? I'm just telling you that it's happened to me, that I've experienced this. Why is it that who I am today seriously so imperfect? How did that happen? There's really no explanation for it. Was it like was it like an act of self-will where I was like, I'm gonna change my life. I'm gonna be a better person this morning. Like I guarantee you, like Angela and the kids are like snickering right now. Cause they know, like if you've ever like walked with me on my journey of dieting and exercise, you know that like self-will, strong will, is not anything that I have. I'm completely turned in on myself. I'm completely like what gratifies right now? Let's do it. That's who, that's, I, I'm not like a strong-willed person. Was it like, was it like a decision to love? I'm going to stop living for myself and just love others. Again, Angela and the kids are snickering. Like my default mode is self-centeredness. My default mode is to do what I want to do and to be annoyed. Best case scenario, be annoyed when people try to get me to move off of what I want to do. Worst case scenario, to be angry and push people away. Was it a philosophical decision? Okay, Aaron, your life is really screwed up. What you need to do is you need to kind of weigh the evidence for God and see, is it really true? Actually, I didn't do any of that. I was running like heck away from God. God actually chased me down. Literally, I went and visited a church with Angela, never been in a Lutheran church before for worship service. I was was a pagan, not a Christian. I went and visited a church there and the pastor chased me down in the parking lot. Honestly, if that had not happened, I don't know if I would have survived, and I mean that quite literally. I don't know if I would be alive right now. I know for certain I wouldn't be a Christian. I know for certain I wouldn't have wife and kids. I know for certain I wouldn't be a pastor. Jesus chased me down in a church parking lot in Collinsville. that's, That's only... It's only the resurrection of Jesus that has completely altered the way I see the world. And and I'm not perfect. I'm a part of the problem too. I'm the reason why Jesus had to come. I'm not like, and now I love selflessly and I have all this strong will and I'm just pursuing God all the time. That's not true. But my motives have completely changed. The things I value have completely changed. The culture of death that I used to live under now, I no longer live under. That can only happen by the power of the resurrection of God. And listen, I am just a microcosm of that story that God is trying to write. What God is doing with me, has done and is doing and needs to continue to do with me, is something that he's planning to do with all of creation to fix everything. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, that's not possible. It's not possible for the pollution in the world to be done away with. It's not possible for sickness and diseases to be done away with. It's not possible for sin problems to be done away with. It's not possible for death to be undone and for the dead to be raised to life. Let me close with a quote by N.T. Wright, great Anglican scholar. He says this in a book called For All God's Worth. He says this, the message of the resurrection is that not, not just Aaron Miller, not just you, but that this world matters, that the injustices and pains of this present world must now be addressed with the news that healing, justice, and love have won. If Easter means Jesus Christ is only raised in a spiritual sense, then Easter is only about me finding a new dimension in my personal, private, spiritual life. But if Jesus Christ is truly risen from the dead, Christianity becomes the good news for the whole world. Easter means that in a world where injustice, violence, and degradation are endemic, God is not prepared to tolerate such things. And that we will work and plan With all the energy of God, think about Paul's comments, I worked hard, but it was actually the grace of God working in me. I was working hard, but it was the resurrection power, the grace of God working in me to implement the victory of Jesus over them all. Take away Easter, and Karl Marx was probably right to accuse Christianity of ignoring problems of the material world. Take away Easter, and Freud was probably right to say that Christianity is just wish fulfillment. Take away Easter, and Nietzsche was probably right to say that Christianity is just for wimps. But if Jesus actually rose from the dead, God is now finally acting to rescue his world. Every part of who you are, body, soul, mind, relationship, every part of what this universe physically is, physically and spiritually, God is now acting by the power of the resurrection of his son to fix all these things. Amen. stand for prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being such a good God and for loving us all the time. And we thank you for the gift of your son's resurrection and for the new creation that it's brought about. And uh, as we think about resurrection, we pray that you would hasten the day when uh, you would finally raise all of us in your creation from the dead and that your son, Jesus, would return and make all things new. And so we pray together, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Lord, in your mercy. Father, meanwhile, we pray that you would put us on mission, that you would fill up the hearts of St. James Lutheran Church with the power of your son's resurrection, through your Holy Spirit, working with your word and with your sacraments, and that you would use us to be your agents, to be a sign of, of the power of your son's resurrection to the village of Glen Carbon, and that Glen Carbon would become a place where your son reigns, where righteousness and justice and truth and self-sacrificial love are the coin of the realm, and that you would let us be a part of that, Lord, here at St. James, that we would be on that mission with you, along with our, uh, uh, all the churches which honor you and glorify you here in our village Lord, in your mercy. We thank you for those who serve uh, with us and serve alongside of us. Uh, and I pray this morning and thank you for uh, our elders who you've raised up to serve us with your word, and that you would continue blessing them and giving them servants' hearts, taking their hearts away from, and, and all of our hearts, taking our hearts away from the desire for power and to be Lord and to make us servants and to make us examples of what self-sacrificial love looks like. I also pray and thank you for um, our missions that we support too, and especially this morning we thank you for Revival School in St. Louis and um, Mike's work there uh, with the Congolese refugees and the work that he does uh, living out and teaching them the gospel through art and through music and through dance and educational programs and pray that you would continue to bless him and his ministry there Lord, in your mercy. Father, we can only come and pray these things to you because our brother Jesus did rise from the dead. He is not dead, but now he lives, and he lives for us. And united to him, we become his sisters and brothers, and because of that, we become your daughters and sons. And so we live in your house, Father, as your children, and we ask these requests to you like children ask their father because you are our father, but we freely confess that we can only ask you this. Through the name Through the blood, through the brotherhood of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. The Lord be with you. you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It It is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, O Lord our God, King of all creation, for you've had mercy on us and given your only begotten Son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But mainly we're bound to praise you for the glorious resurrection of your son Jesus Christ our Lord. For he is the true Passover lamb who was sacrificed for us and has taken away the sin of the world. Who by his death has destroyed death and by his rising to life again has won for us everlasting life. Therefore with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven we loud and magnify your glorious name evermore praising you in singing. forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said take eat this is my body given for you do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he also took the cup after supper and when he had given thanks he gave it to them saying drink of it all of you this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated.
1: sing haleluya I'm
0: Now may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. bless the Lord. Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Look around, find somebody you don't recognize. It should be easier than it is most Sundays. Make relationship. Go in peace.